This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Paul Burness, a managing partner at Worrell's Solvency and Forensic Accountants. They are dedicated to the areas of solvency management, insolvency administration, and financial investigation. In the episode, you'll hear all about what happens to a company when it enters the liquidation process. You'll understand various terminology, what the process actually involves, and who in the company is affected. From understanding when your business is insolvent to ensuring directors aren't personally liable, this episode has everything you need to be aware of when running a company. Let's jump in. Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show today. Uh, it's a pleasure, Savan. Now, you're the managing partner at Worrells, an insolvency firm. How did you get into insolvency? I often say I got into insolvency by mistake. I had a passion for law and decided to study accounting, economics at the time, and majored in accounting. And that was at the time of the recession we had to have. And of course, there wasn't too many jobs going outside insolvency. So I fell into the insolvency services at the end of the day. Yeah. And you haven't got an out, so you must like it a little bit if that's a true comment. Yes, I do. I, I like it a lot. We get to see so many different people and often at either the best or the worst times in their lives. So spending time with people and helping people, that's why I like it. Can you tell us a little bit about what does an insolvency firm do? So what does Worrells do? You're the managing partner there. What do you guys do at Worrells? We do anything from a little bankruptcy to a decent sized liquidation, voluntary administration, receivership, and anything in between. So it's anything from a very small business to quite a large business. Is liquidation probably the main thing that you do? Is that sort of the big chunk? Absolutely, yeah. Maybe before we dive into liquidation, it's an area that I want to dive into a little bit more today. Can you explain what liquidation means? Absolutely. It's effectively bankruptcy for a company. And what's the role of the liquidator? What do you actually do in proceeding with that? The role of a liquidator, there's a few aspects to it, but ultimately it's to realise the assets and pay what's available to creditors, to do an investigation and report to creditors, and obviously the regulatory body. Now, Obviously, we don't want companies to go insolvent and go bad. We want companies to be profitable, helps the economy, helps accountants with their ongoing compliance. But how does a director know when a company needs to be liquidated? What are the signs that need to be looking for? When do they talk to you? I think when they talk to us is when they think the company might be insolvent. And the reality is the earlier they talk to us, the better. Because often the earlier that I can get in front of somebody, the more options I can give them. Unfortunately, a lot of directors leave things until the very last minute. And if it's left until the last minute, often they don't have as many options as otherwise could be the case. So, Paul, they've obviously started to talk to you well in advance, hopefully, if they've done the right thing. How did they appoint you? How does that work? Because I feel like your role is for the creditors and then the directors appointing a liquidator. 
Can you sort of tell us a little about the appointment and the journey you take a client into accepting a liquidation appointment? There are two types of appointment. There are voluntary appointments or involuntary appointments and the involuntary appointments are all via court. The voluntary appointments, depends what it is, whether it's liquidation or administration, but generally it's a resolution of the directors and the shareholders that would start something like this. So if you look at the most commonly used appointment type, which is accredited as voluntary liquidation, requires a resolution of directors and then a resolution of the shareholders to actually place the company into liquidation. And do you need both? So if the directors want to liquidate the company because they're running the business, they feel like it's not going well, it might be trading insolvently, but the shareholders are like, no, 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 we don't want that to happen. So do you need both parties to sign the docs? Ultimately, you do. It's a very technical question and I could <laughs> go on with this one for hours, but you certainly need the shareholders' approval, absolutely. Is it unanimous or majority or does it matter what the constitution says? Is that It's uh, usually a special resolution. Okay, cool. Is there an ideal time frame you're required to appoint a liquidator? If you leave it too late, what's the ideal time? As I said earlier, the ideal time is the earlier the better because then there may be other options outside just a liquidator. And ultimately, the issue with leaving it too late is the possibility of having a director that's traded whilst insolvent and then exposing their personal assets. So the next part of the episode I wanted to go through was a little bit about your process. If we can sort of run through how that works. So you've had the meetings, you've been appointed. What's the process? How does that work? You sort of go through that journey for us, sort of a standard client that you would work with. The first step of any insolvency appointment is securing the assets. So it's working out what assets are there. Are they secured for the creditors? Because a liquidator's got an obligation to realize the assets for the purpose of the creditors or for the purpose of paying the creditors. And ultimately, that would be the first step. We would talk to the directors, understand where the business is at, work out whether it's a business that can trade on and whether it can be sold as a going concern or whether it's too far gone and there's no funds to actually allow that to happen. And that might mean different strategy that you actually need to then realise the assets. And we'd work through what the best way of realising those assets are. And realising just means either selling those assets, either whether it's a going concern or at the highest possible value, either whether it's an auction or whatever it is. Is that sort of what that means by realising the assets, how quickly you can get into cash at the biggest price? Correct. Okay. Does a director get involved? So once they've handed the keys, what rights do they have? Do they get to go into the premises or it's done, their roles now diminished? Great question, Savan. So effectively on liquidation, the liquidator replaces the directors and has all of the powers effectively of the directors. But we tend to keep them involved because often they have so much knowledge that they can help us with. So it may be that they know parties that will want to buy the assets or the business. It might be that they have all that history that we need the knowledge of. So we do tend to, depending on the situation, keep them involved so we can get the best possible outcome. Obviously, it's a stressful situation for employees and creditors when this happens. Are there protections with the creditor side? So what can creditors do to protect themselves in a liquidation process? And what are sort of the tips that you can give to them so that if a liquidation happens, creditors have either some say or some kind of protection? 
there's probably two parts to that question. The first part is the employees, and there are protections for the employees. The Fair Entitlement Guarantee Scheme kicks in, and for those non-related creditors, generally it sees them paid most of what they're owed outside super from a government contribution, which is effectively a loan to the company in liquidation. Now, the other part to your question is how do unsecured creditors protect themselves? That's a fascinating question. Often, I think if they've supplied goods, they would want to be registering on the personal property securities registrar. That then gives them some security over, depending on how the registration is done. And it can be quite a powerful tool to make them a secured creditor as opposed to an unsecured creditor. Can you go a little bit deeper into that? So can you give us an example of a situation where a creditor might have that in place and how that's been successful for them? Absolutely. So effectively, you could be looking, say you provide stock to the entity, you could register on the personal property securities register as the creditor, and your registration might include security over that stock. So any unsold stock, the liquidator actually has to deal with you as the creditor to say, can I sell the stock? Or if they do sell the stock, then remit the proceeds to you if your security is correct. Okay. So that's a really good protection. So when you look at realizing the assets, you need to look at ones that have got a PPSR and that little parcel of stock actually once realized or can be given in lieu of the payments that are owed to that creditor. Is that how it works? But quite potentially. And the other thing is, if your registration is right, maybe able to trace through into the company's bank account or into debtors. Okay, awesome. So we tick, we need to get that registration and get it done right. Is there ways that a director should deal with employees? I mean, do directors just appoint you, go home, and then you rock up one day? What's your advice to a, a director that's about to go into liquidation They've got lots of employees. What's your advice to them? Should they talk to them the night before? How do you deal with that? What's your recommendation there? It's a great question. And to be honest, it depends on the matter and it depends on the relationship between the director and the employees. We find from time to time that there are directors that don't want to break that news to their employees and are just not comfortable having the conversation. We are certainly well equipped to have that conversation because we can certainly take employees through what the process is likely to be and how they are going to get paid and what the protections are in place. Then again, you see directors who have had years of relationship with employees and they want to be the first to break that news. The interesting thing I've found over the years with employees is often they know it's coming. It's very few times have I been into a business where the employees didn't know it was coming. Yeah, that's probably true. I think if a business isn't performing well, it'd be very, very difficult to hide that fact. And if they didn't know it was coming, it means that could have been part of the problem that the employees weren't engaged in the business and that could have been part of the issue. How long does it take to liquidate a company, Paul? It ultimately depends on the size and the complexity. So anywhere between three months and three or four years, depending on the complexity of the assets to be realised, the investigations to be done. I wanted to sort of talk, throw you some terminology and talk about things that are in that liquidation space that people may have heard of and maybe shed some light around that. So preferential payments. So I've been involved in liquidations and preferential payments is something that gets thrown around. Can you tell us how that fits into a liquidation process and 
what can be done about avoiding that for a client of ours? So how does that all work? What does that mean? Preferential payments are fairly topical. So effectively, a liquidator can recover payments that have been made company going back. It depends on the type of transaction. For ordinary unsecured creditors, it's usually six months from when the company's gone into liquidation. For related parties, it can be quite a lot longer. There are all sorts of provisions in the Corporations Act that allows a liquidator to drag back a payment that's already been made. As you can imagine, a lot of the creditors think this is pretty unfair because they've been paid for the services they've provided or the goods they've been provided. The best way to avoid that is registration on the PPSR. Is there other things? I know I've heard in the past and readings that I've done, it's a really contradictory thing that I've read is if you're owed money and you put a lot of pressure on that company to pay and they pay you over and above someone else or they don't pay the full invoice or they only pay half pay or you get them into a payment plan, that could be seen as preferential payment. Is that true? Is that sort of? That is absolutely true. And one of the tests is, have you been paid in the ordinary course of business? So if you've been paid in the ordinary course of business, it's quite difficult for a liquidator to unwind that transaction. If you've sent demands, issued a statutory demand, then all of a sudden it's more likely to be a preferential payment. The other thing I suppose to watch is the running account. It might be that the debt has gone up and down. It's most likely that a liquidator can only take the overall decrease in that. Now, this has been subject to a whole heap of litigation over the last few years. So it's a bit of a moving feast, to be honest. Because ATO would be the prime preferential payment. They love entering into payment plans and not doing things in the ordinary course of business. Is that something that you see? Absolutely. So I would say a very large percentage of the payments we recover are from the ATO. And the good thing about the ATO is they provide you with immaculate notes. They keep great notes in the ATO so you know what's happened. And of course, we can get those under the freedom of information. And the other thing with the ATO is you know they're good for the payment. So ultimately, they will pay. Yeah, awesome. And what does it mean? Another term that gets thrown out is Phoenix trading. What does that mean? That's a liquidation or an insolvency term. What's that all about? So Phoenixing is effectively where a business rises up from the ashes of a deceased company, if I can put it that way. (laughs) So effectively, what you generally see in illegal Phoenix activity is the assets of an entity transferred across to a new entity that the directors control the debt left in the old entity, the old entity either gets wound up or alternatively might just wither away and the directors effectively keep trading. And it's particularly the issue is that no consideration is paid for the transfer of the assets. Okay. And is that something that's common? Do you see a lot of that or does it get prosecuted? Does it actually be utilised? It's particularly common in the construction industry. Industries where there's not a lot of hard assets is where it's particularly common. Does it get prosecuted? Yeah, absolutely. So ASIC are certainly looking for that and looking to prosecute it. So it's something to be very careful of. When we started the show, you spoke about your role and reporting to creditors and to ASIC about the affairs of the company. One of the areas I wanted to talk about was the director's duties and things around insolvent trading and What does that mean? Do you have to assess the performance of the director and how does that all work? I have to report to ASIC on any breach of director's duties. So it's something that we will look at and obviously directors need to be cognizant of their duties. 
general law duties and also your duties of insolvent trading and things like that. So, yes, we do have an obligation to report all of that. My next question is around the misconception around liquidation and personal bankruptcy. I have meetings with clients here and there, and they think liquidating a company is like a personal bankruptcy, and they kind of misunderstand that. Can you talk about the differences between liquidating a company and bankruptcy and the terminology around that? Liquidation of the company is purely the corporate entity. It doesn't affect the individual. And where it does affect the individual is if they've been a director of two or more failed companies. So if they've been a director of two or more failed companies that pay less than 50 cents in the dollar, then ASIC can issue a show cause notice, which could ban the director from being a director again for a period of time. Personal bankruptcy is obviously your personal assets and liabilities. So they're quite different processes. And it may be that one follows the other, but that would only be the case if there were personal guarantees or other liabilities that the individual has. And in terms of the director's obligations, in terms of not only the responsibilities that as director, once it goes into liquidation, is there any recourse from the director? I mean, we set up structures and operations in a corporate entity and so on for certain reasons, but can you talk to us through about are the directors personally liable for any of this stuff that happens? Yes, and there's probably three main ways a director can have liability. One, if they've signed personal guarantees to any of the creditors. Your second way is certain tax obligations. So if ultimately they haven't lodged their basses, it may be that they're liable for some of the company's taxes. And the liability is PAYG withholding potentially, GST from 1st of April 2020 onwards, and same with luxury car tax and wine equalisation tax. So get this right. If you lodge your basses late and let's say you're liquidating and you owe the ATR a million dollars, but all of that was lodged late, what does late mean? Is it 90 days from memory? Yep. So it's three months after the due date. So That's the definition of late. Yes. So that all of that money could then be liable to the director personally because the obligation wasn't lodged on time. Correct. So awesome. my advice to all directors is even if you can't afford to pay it, make sure you lodge your basses on time because that way the tax office actually have to send you one of the old form director penalty notices in the mail, which is a note to your home address saying you have 21 days to pay the debt, put the company into administration or put the company into liquidation. And then you get a choice, you can then potentially obligate that liability. Awesome. And obviously directors in that scenario are not personally liable. Do shareholders get involved at all? Obviously they are required to sign to put the company into liquidation. What happens to the shareholder? What is anything there for them? As far as liability for them, it's a bit like if you're a shareholder of BHP. So no, they're limited companies. So you're usually limited to your paid up capital. One of the most asked questions when I have a chat with your business partner is they talk about credit rating. All these guys want to borrow money for a home and they have other obligations privately that they need to adhere to. How does it affect the director's credit rating? We talked about liquidating a company and it's not personal bankruptcy. What does that all mean? Does it actually affect their credit rating? It certainly does show on their credit rating. So it will show that they have been a director of a company that's gone into external administration. My view is that if the director is going to apply for finance down the track, they need a pretty solid reason to show to the financier. And 
sometimes a liquidation is well beyond the control of the client. I want to dive into a story of yours where you've gone, oh my God, everything they've done here is completely wrong. And if they had done these three things, they would have got a better result. Would you be able to sort of think on the spot of a story that or a company have liquidated where if they had followed a certain process, it just would have been a better result for the director? The horror stories I see are people that sit on things and don't do things. And I certainly can share with you a story, and this was some years ago. The director came in to see me, was referred by his accountant, and he came kicking and screaming. He didn't want to be there. It was very clear. First thing he said to me is, Paul, I don't know why I'm here. My accountant sent me. When I finally got him to start talking to me, we worked out there was a deficiency in the company of a couple of million dollars. And he was of the view that he could just trade out. And I spent some time trying to understand what profit the company could make when things were going well. And we eventually got to a figure of when things are going really, really well, we would make $400,000 a year. And I said to him, well, you need five perfect years to fix this problem. And I could see him processing that. And he said, look, you know, I don't usually have five perfect years in a row. And fortunately, his wife was beside him and she asked the obvious question, which is, have you remembered that you're 76? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. So he had literally put all of the family assets into the company. And, you know, at that age, it's really hard to come back. He did go away and decided he'd liquidate the company. He called me three days later and he said, this is the best thing I've ever done. I've never felt so relaxed. That's a horror story, but a great story at the same time where I think the takeaway there is, is just don't put your head in the sand and you just don't realize how many years it can take to get out of a hole and are so emotional about their businesses. They just don't want to do it. And I've seen it in many occasions. So Paul, you've been appointed. I assume you don't do your work for free. So how does the liquidator get paid? That's a very good question, Savan. Sometimes we do do the work for free, but we prefer not to for obvious reasons. So a liquidator, it depends on the type of matter and whether there's assets in the company. So if there are assets in the company, usually we will have the first recourse to those assets, depending on whether or not they're charged to a secured creditor. So generally, it would take a resolution of creditors for us to be allowed to be paid. If there are no assets in the company or no assets we can use for our fees, we will often ask the directors for a contribution. And we talked about realising an asset and your role of realising an asset. You get all the money and it just goes to all the creditors equally or is there a ranking system? How does that all work? Yeah, there certainly is a ranking system. So again, it depends whether there's a secured creditor or not, because if there is a secured creditor, they will often take the proceeds of the sale of that particular asset or a group of assets. Assuming there's not, employees, and that's after liquidators fees, obviously, employees are usually first cab off the rank. And again, there is some ranking amongst the employees as to how they're paid. But then the uh, ordinary unsecured creditors are paid pari pursue. So effectively, each equal and they get a proportion of their debt back. Awesome. I want to sort of get some tips from you. So the tips that I'd like to get for us is probably some things that clients can take away and listeners can take away around doing things the right way from an asset protection point of view. So obviously, by running your business in a company, it protects you that if things go wrong, you're not personally liable. But from an asset protection point of view, as an accountant, or if you ran your own business, what would you do to structure yourself that if your business went bad, 
that you were squeaky clean in the sense that you did the best that you can, but things went bad, but you weren't affected personally in some way. I think the first thing that you need to do is set up the structures right from the start. It needs to be in place early and hopefully before you even go into business where certainly the director has no real assets in their own name and how you achieve that is probably a better question for you than for me. But ultimately making sure the director is effectively impecunious and therefore if there is liability accrued at a later point in time, then that may not be a problem. The second thing is obviously personal guarantees. The idea would be not to sign the personal guarantees if we can help it. And if you can find another creditor that that will supply without guarantees, then I think that's pretty important. Third thing is coming back to what we said earlier, lodge your tax returns as they're due. Don't let them sit around. Just reminded me about the tax returns. With super, even if you don't lodge a super on time, Is that one thing that the director will always be liable for, whether it's lodged on time or not? The issue with super is if you don't lodge the superannuation guarantee charge by the due date that's provided by the legislation, which from memory is one month and 28 days after it's due, then the director is automatically personally liable. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Paul. It's been very insightful chat and hopefully this conversation can help our listeners understand what you do as a liquidator, and hopefully they never get into this situation, but if they do, I know that your team at Worrells will look after them. Thanks very much, Ron. Awesome. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952, and we play a pivotal role in developing implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna. And we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's the bottom line.